Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. EM Cases is part of SREMI, Schwartz-Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute, the nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through research and education. The opinions expressed on this podcast are intended for information and education purposes only and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified practicing physician. The information shared in this program is provided for the purposes of general information and education for use only in Canada. The information is not intended to provide specific professional medical or legal advice or constitute a standard of care. I love FOMED. I love learning. I love accumulating knowledge and applying it to my practice. And 20 years into my career, I feel like I have a pretty good grasp on most things emergency medicine. But the one thing I've lacked knowledge about that almost every emergency provider will eventually need to know, or at least would want to know, so they don't feel like they just got punched in the mouth, is what to do and what to expect when you get sued. And it turns out I'm not alone. Most emergency providers know little about the medical legal process and how to handle getting sued. And just like becoming an expert in managing emergency airways, we really should have a plan before we get sued. Because what typically happens is that we have no plan and little knowledge and we get punched in the mouth. Then all kinds of anxiety, anger, self-doubt, second-guessing, almost delusional thinking sometimes, and even quitting the profession may ensue. Which is to be expected when we practice in a culture of wanting to be perfect, seldom admitting our mistakes, and not fully grasping the reality that bad happens to everyone. Everyone. And this road after bad stuff happens is largely preventable. We forget that making mistakes or perceived mistakes when they weren't even really mistakes is completely normal and natural for all humans. We all tend to be a bit irrational about the mistakes we sometimes make, and many of us end up isolating ourselves and feeling alone. And this is exacerbated by the fine legal folks advising you not to talk about the case with anyone. So if you see yourself in this boat, and I'm guessing that we pretty much all are to some degree, then listen up. Because in this special podcast, we have a guest host you've heard before on EM Quick Hits, That's Hans Rosenberg, who speaks to an ED doc who's worked for the Canadian Medical Protective Association for more than a decade and to an experienced litigator who specializes in medical defense. And they guide us through the whole process from how to avoid getting sued in the first place to what to do when you get served, to the discovery, to going to court and everything in between. Now, before we get into that, I thought I'd ask a few chiefs of EDs from around the country to give us their quick tips on how to stick handle getting sued. We'll hear from a few of them now and then again near the end of the podcast. And at the very end of the podcast, I'll leave you with some tips on self-compassion that may be useful not only if and when you get sued, but after any bad outcomes or college complaints or perceived mistake you may or may not have made. All right. Here we go. Hi, this is Dr. Eddie Lang, the Department Head for Emergency Medicine in Calgary. Medical legal concerns and even some college complaints can be an enormous strain on the career trajectory of an emergency physician. 
This is something that I have observed over the course of my career, and I'm hoping to offer a few additional points that can put such an event into perspective and limit its impact. First and foremost, it is essential that such an occurrence does not create a second victim situation. When faced with these circumstances, I think it's really important for the physician involved to reach out to department peers or leadership to share the strain and stress they may be experiencing. These interactions can help highlight how much of the anxiety is driven by the culture of infallibility that we often see in medicine. It also helps put into perspective how one case that may have involved our erroneous judgment is entirely expected to occur over the course of one's career and usually stands as a drop in the bucket against all the great compassionate care and excellent clinical care that has been provided. We still remain extremely fortunate in Canada to have very low rates of medical legal concerns, and when such a rare but often inevitable instance does arise, the blow can be softened by engaging with those who have gone there before. Hi there, it's Howard Evans. I'm an emergency physician at Sinai Health in Toronto, and I want to share a couple of tips with you about avoiding and dealing with lawsuits. First of all, you never know which patient might have a bad outcome or might even perceive they've had a bad outcome. And they're much more likely to sue you if they didn't like you. So in every case, it's worth it to be polite, be professional, be kind, try to be positive. Secondly, We take really good care of our patients for their benefit and their families. But we write good notes, partly for our own benefit. Don't shortchange yourself. If you do get sued, your note will be your best friend and ally. Write a note that's good enough. You do have time. If and when you do get sued, as most of us will eventually get sued, life will go on. Your career will go on. Just take a deep breath and remember almost everybody gets sued in their career. Hand it over quickly to the professionals at the CMPA. We're so blessed in Canada to have the CMPA supporting us. And then try your best to put it aside and go back to living your life because it's going to take a long time to work its way through the system. Good luck. Hello. I'm Eric Lutovsky, Chief of Emergency Medicine at Trillium Health Partners. I have over 30 years of medical legal experience, and just as importantly, I've been sued myself. Anton Hellman has asked me to provide you with some practical tips if or when you get sued. My first comment is, don't be surprised if and when you do get an action commenced against you. In fact, Every year, one in 37 emergency physicians get sued. So let's say you work in a group of 50 emergency physicians. One or two of your group will get sued every single year. When you do get sued, you probably won't even remember the patient. And in fact, your involvement with the patient might have been very trivial. The sentinel event, or the adverse outcome, may have been on another emergency department visit or even when the patient was an inpatient. But at the beginning of a lawsuit, everybody who is even remotely involved with the care of the patient gets named. 
And if your care was not the care that was in question, then you may get it dropped from the action after a year or two or three. When you do get served, don't go into the medical records yet to find out what your involvement was. First and foremost, call the CMPA. You will first speak to an intake person, and you will then be called back by one of the medical legal advisors, usually within 24 hours. The CMPA will then guide you through every single step along the way, including, firstly, even how to access the chart. When you are allowed to review your charting and the medical records related to your involvement, and if you think that your documentation on the patient was either incomplete or inadequate, do not, I repeat, do not in any way alter the original chart, whether it's a paper chart or an electronic chart. This will be uncovered, I guarantee you. And when it does, you've suddenly lost your credibility completely. Do not alter your chart. Do not talk to any of your colleagues who may have also been named in the suit. Expect a lengthy process. Medical legal cases can go on and usually do for many, many years. In fact, it's quite common for cases to go on for six, seven years, or even much longer. Trust the CMPA, your medical legal advisor, and your lawyer. Finally, I'm not going to sugarcoat the impact that the whole process will have on you. It is very stressful getting sued, even if you think your care was completely appropriate. You will have many questions. Do I have to disclose this in my yearly hospital reapplication? Can I lose my privileges? Can I lose my license? So my advice to you is if there is a peer support program in your hospital, unfortunately, most hospitals now do have peer support programs for their professional staff, reach out to someone to talk to you. Obviously, without disclosing any of the details of the lawsuit, it will be good to talk to someone to share your anxieties, your concerns, and your stress. This will be a very stressful process and period of your time, and I guarantee you, it will take its emotional toll. And having peer support person to share those anxieties will be good for your mental health and your emotional well-being. My name is Alan Bell, and I have been an emergency physician for 13 years, and I have also previously served as the Chief of Emergency Medicine for Quinty Healthcare. I have been asked today to provide some brief tips for ER physicians for if and or when they get sued. I have experience with this personally and speak from some of the mistakes and challenges that I faced. My first advice seems overly simplistic, but honestly, it is to just slow down. Slow down your mind and your actions in the immediate aftermath of being informed of a pending lawsuit. As ER physicians, we are all accustomed to immediate answers and a rapid progression through problem assessment, treatment, and resolution. This is not the case within the legal system. Prepare yourself for a process that may very well take years, and facilitating that realization will help ease some of the initial angst and anxiety. 
This is a marathon and not a sprint. Following the timelines and processes set out by the CMPA will assist in this as well, so be sure to get them involved in your defense early. Second, be sure not to access those areas of the chart that are not directly related to your care provision. It is tempting to want to review all aspects of the patient's chart, including previous visits for any trends or follow-up visits for details around subsequent presentations. I would encourage you to avoid doing this. Focus your chart review on the care that you provided on the date in question and avoid what could be a violation of patient privacy by extending your review beyond that scope. Third, speak with trusted colleagues. A lawsuit is damaging to your confidence as a physician and it is easy for imposter syndrome to set in. Allowing yourself to discuss the case while maintaining confidentiality will help you realize that many of us have had similar happenings and this does not necessarily reflect poorly on you as a physician. Similarly, if a colleague approaches you with a desire to speak about a lawsuit or just a tough case in general, make yourself available to them. We all need a sounding board on occasion. Lastly, prevention is key. Focus on maintaining empathy for the patients you see and demonstrating that in your interactions. And be sure to document in a manner that clearly outlines your thought process during the encounter. And most importantly, the instructions that you gave regarding when the patient should return to the ED. Specific discharge instructions are key in terms of recognizing that patients present with diseases at various stages, and time may allow for a more accurate diagnosis. Encourage second assessments. I often say something like, please, if one to two days from now you think that I have missed something or things have clearly changed, give us the opportunity to reassess you in the ED. Patients always appreciate humility and honesty, and this may in fact stave off a lawsuit down the road. Thank you so much for those excellent tips, Dr. Lang, Dr. Ovens, Dr. Lutovsky, and Dr. Bell. Now I'm going to hand the reins over to the wonderful Hans Rosenberg. My name is Hans Rosenberg, and I am an emergency physician at the Ottawa Hospital. And like all EM cases, we start with a case. So picture this. I'm working in urgent care with a resident. A man walks up to me at a desk where all the patients can see us and the nurses and the residents. And then he says... Are you Dr. Rosenberg? I said, of course, yes. And then he tells me, you're being served. And he hands me a very official looking letter. I think, oh, I probably need to be a witness at a trial or something like that. Then I see at the top that it says, statement of claim. Hmm. I read a little further and I see that it's the legal action is actually against me. Now, this statement of claim included words like lacking the necessary skills, competence and judgment and seeking damages for some large amount of money. At this point, I had so many questions. What did I do? Who is this patient? I didn't recognize the name. Am I allowed to look them up? I then thought, I got to call my wife. I got to call the chief. What do I do now? And then, of course, I'm in the middle of a shift. So how was I going to possibly go to see another patient when this was running through my head? Well, Today we're going to go through legal action brought forth against a physician using a real case in order to guide us through it. Fortunately, I have two amazing guests with me today who will be the experts and I will be here really to just facilitate the discussion. First is Dr. Janet Newth. She's an emergency physician and has been working at the CMPA, which is the Canadian Medical Protective Association, for 13 years as a physician advisor in safe medical care learning. Welcome, Janet. Oh, thank you, Hans. It's my pleasure to be here today. 
We also have with us Ms. Brianne Brannigan. She's a partner at the law firm Gowling WLG. She has been a litigator specializing in medical defense for almost 10 years. Welcome, Brianne. Thanks so much for inviting me, Hans. I know um, most physician clients are happy to never have to speak to their lawyer again. So it was really lovely uh, to hear from you. And before we get into the nitty gritty, if you could indulge me for a second, I did want to take this opportunity to thank you and all of the other frontline healthcare workers listening um, for all that you have sacrificed and continue to sacrifice for all of us during this pandemic. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for being here and those kind words. Now, we've got our case, so we're going to work our way through it. But before we get there, let's get a bit of background information, if you will. So the first thing I want to talk about, we'll call a little bit of a legal primer, if you will. So, Brienne, I'm going to start almost at the end first. I want you to tell us, if you don't mind, what are some of the outcomes of legal action? Thanks, Hans. Yeah, happy to to go over that. And I'm also thrilled that we have Janet here to provide us with some statistics about um, about all the specific outcomes. But first, in broad strokes, there's really three possible outcomes for a medical negligence action. Um, the first is a dismissal or discontinuance. In essence, um, the action has been dropped. In most cases, this is because plaintiffs cannot prove their allegations of negligence. But it, all you need to know is really the action is over. There's no finding or admission of negligence and there's no money that's been paid. So second possible outcome is a settlement. So this is an out-of-court, another out-of-court outcome. Um, and this is where money is paid to the plaintiff for plaintiffs on behalf of one or more of the defendants to bring the action to an end. Often this result comes about following either a negotiation or a mediation uh, between the parties. Um, but again, the action is over. And then the third uh, possible outcome is, is going to trial. Now, admittedly, this is quite infrequent in the uh, medical negligence arena. It can be before a judge, your trial, or depending on you know what province or territory you're in, it could be before a jury. Um, so for example, Ontario has civil juries, um, but Quebec does not. One of the things I'd just like to point out quickly about trials is the language around the outcomes. We're not dealing in the criminal realm. You know, we're not using language of guilty or not guilty. Instead, we're looking at whether a defendant is liable or legally responsible for the damage that was caused to the plaintiffs. Now, I'm going to get some statistics from Janet. But first, Janet, can you tell me a little bit about the CMPA and really what the heck is it? Yeah, for some of your audience members who may not be familiar, the Canadian Medical Protective Association, it's not an insurance company. We're a not-for-profit mutual defense organization, and we represent over 100,000 Canadian physicians. So actually, over 95% of Canadian physicians are members. So we have a very good idea of the national data for each specialty. And the Canadian Medical Protective Association's mission is really to protect professional integrity of physicians and to promote safe medical care. And that's through patient safety related research, education sessions and resources and advocacy for system improvements in, in healthcare. 
As physicians, we all love statistics. So can you actually tell me a little bit about, uh, if you have this information, how many legal actions are brought forth against, say, emergency physicians and maybe some of the data surrounding outcomes? So we recently did a a five-year analysis of uh, civil legal actions uh, from 2016 to 2020 that uh, involved emergency physicians practicing in the emergency department. And over the five years, we had 437 civil actions. So that's probably less than 85 a year, considering we likely have 15 million emergency medicine visits in in Canada. Um, Those 437 cases represented 11% of our total cases uh, that we have. And out of those, uh, 37% had an unfavorable medical legal outcome for the physician. So Again, that's lower than the, the, our CMPA average for our members. But almost all of these involved uh, a settlement. So as Brian said, uh, peer experts were not supportive of the care and an award is paid out to appropriately compensate the patient or their families as soon as possible. Interesting, a very small number ever go to court. So only about 5% of cases ever go to trial. So that's an unlikely uh, event. And the rest of the cases were dismissed. So Janet, that was really helpful information. One more question that I have, uh, if you were able to answer for me, would be, on average, from the moment that you're served uh, legal action, uh, how long does the process take? Well, Hans, it really depends and it can be very variable. Uh, uh, Some cases uh, are either dismissed or go to settlement fairly soon, but others, more complex cases where you need multiple peer experts, and especially if they're going to trial, can last for many years, you know, five or more years. So it really depends on the case. Well, that certainly makes sense because my case went actually on for approximately four years. So that sounds about right. That's right. And, and we didn't even have to go go to trial, Hans. And so, yeah, the marathon, not the sprint. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, Brienne, are you able to clarify a few concepts for me and some terms? Certainly in medicine, we almost have our own language, but law is also the same. There's a few terms that I find either a bit intimidating or confusing. Things like duty of care, standard of care, negligence, these seem to come up quite a bit. Would you be able to clarify that for me? I'd be happy to. So medical negligence is what we call a tort at common law. And this is uh, the case all across Canada. Now, Quebec is a little bit different. In Quebec, they have a civil code and their concept of negligence is, is called civil liability, but the elements are, are very similar. In either case, it's the plaintiff's burden to prove the elements of medical negligence. And they have to do so on what's called a balance of probabilities. This is a lower standard than you may have heard on TV or otherwise in the criminal context of beyond a reasonable doubt. But the important thing to remember is the plaintiffs have to prove their allegations of negligence. So the elements of medical negligence are really duty of care, standard of care, causation, and harm. So we'll start with the duty of care. This is really 
capturing the fiduciary relationship between a physician and their patient. And a duty of care is going to exist as soon as there is a physician-patient relationship. So often, you know, this element of negligence is admitted or at least not contested by a physician. And so in the ED context, uh, I think it's important to remember that this duty exists, you know, even if you don't bill for the services that you've rendered, um, or even if you don't actually physically assess the patient yourself, right? Giving an opinion over the phone or even an attending uh, providing, you know, verbal instructions to a resident who actually was the one who saw the patient. Now, Brianne, before you go a little further, uh, as I'm feeling like a first-year medical student listening to a super specialist here, what do you mean by fiduciary relationship? Yeah, great question. <laughs> so a fiduciary relationship is a relationship um, in, in this medical context where a patient is placing special trust or reliance upon the physician who has a duty to act uh, for the benefit of their patient. All right. That makes a lot more sense. And sorry, please continue with uh, the rest of the words that I don't understand. <laughs> no problem. So we're moving on to standard of care. I think this one uh, is, is pretty straightforward. But really, um, when, when we're talking about standard of care as the next element, um, we're looking at the, quote, reasonable physician test. So in the emergency context, right, we're looking to see whether an emergency physician exercised the degree of care and skill, which could reasonably be expected of a normal, prudent practitioner of the same experience and standing. That is the uh, the legal test. I've always liked this definition because it just means that I have to be average. <laughs> That's right. So some of the considerations that are uh, included when we're when we're talking about standard of care is, as I sort of already mentioned, your training and experience are obviously very germane. You know, an RC, PSC specialist in pediatric emergency medicine is going to be held to a, a you know higher and very different standard than, uh, let's say, a trainee in the middle of their um, CFPC emergency medicine certificate. Another consideration are, you know, the resources that were available to you at the time. You know, are you providing care in a rural outpost or are you at a teaching hospital in a major city, right? Your access to imaging investigations, lab works, consultants, transfer capabilities um, are all very relevant to this analysis. Another, uh, you know, important, I think, takeaway for everyone is that, you know, particular caution is taken to avoid hindsight bias. It is not an analysis that starts from the patient's outcome and works backwards to determine what a reasonable physician would have done. Um, this standard is determined at the time that you provided the material care with the information and resources that you had available to you then. And obviously, as I'm sure you appreciate in medicine, this is particularly important, right, as guidelines and accepted best practices evolve frequently. And I guess the last point I'd like to make about standard of care is like all good legal tests, <laughs> this element is not really defined in a black and white way, right? It does not demand perfection. Uh, there's room for differing clinical opinions and even wrong clinical judgment calls. Uh, what ultimately matters is uh, what was reasonable in the circumstances. Now, next, I think you were going to talk about causation. 
What does that mean in terms of the legal setting that we're looking at now? So causation is, is, can be a bit of a complicated element, but what's important to, to understand is that in order to establish negligence, um, it's not enough to just have a breach in the standard of care, right? To have acted in an unreasonable way. That specific breach needs to have a causal link to the patient's injury, harm, loss, whatever it may be. And, you know, most commonly the question in causation that's being posed is whether, and this will get a little legal easy on you, but whether, but for the physician's negligence, the injury would not have occurred. So that, that's appropriately deemed the, uh, the but for test. <laughs> the but for test. Perfect. Janet, would you be able to give us an example of a case where you might wonder whether there is causation? Sure. Um, so say you x-ray, did a chest x-ray of a patient, uh, with a cough and, and, uh, you miss a very obvious lung mass and that is found to be below the standard of care. But say the patient comes back five days later and then that diagnosis is picked up and the patient has lung cancer. So does that five day delay actually make any difference in in terms of what harm the patient had suffered? Would it have made a difference if the diagnosis had been made five days earlier? And that's a perfect segue to the last point we wanted to define, which was harm. So that's right, Hans. So the final element in the negligence analysis is, is really looking at harm. The plaintiff has to have suffered some kind of material injury, loss, or damage that they're seeking compensation for. And, you know, without a compensable loss, there's really no point in pursuing a, a civil action. So one example may be, you know, a resident in the ED performs a simple laceration repair without complication, but maybe misleads a patient regarding their level of training, right? What was the compensable harm in that physician-patient interaction, certainly maybe a breach of the standard of care. And in those types of situations, you know, that's where maybe a complaint is lodged to a physician's licensing body rather than um, pursuing a civil action. Now, I do understand that our colleagues, we're, we're recording from Ottawa, so our colleagues just a little east of us here in Quebec have things a little different. Can you just uh, go over that briefly? Yeah, as, as I mentioned before, they, they practice with the civil code and their concept of negligence is called civil liability. But the elements are very similar. Um, what they are codified as is they're looking for fault, harm, and causation. All right, so just to review there, negligence must be proven by the plaintiff based on a balance of probabilities. And that involves four things, duty of care, standard of care, causation, and harm. So the duty of care is usually admitted or not contested and is present even if you don't see the patient, but just give an opinion over the phone. When it comes to the standard of care, it's the, quote, reasonable physician test, uh, and it's the care and skill that would normally be expected of a normal prudent practitioner of the same experience and standing. Uh, so it takes into account training, resources available at the time without hindsight bias and without demanding perfection. And it's important to know that there is room for differing clinical opinions and even wrong judgment calls. The third part of negligence is causation. 
And so the specific breach of standard of care needs to have a causal link to the patient's injury, harm, or loss. And they call that in legalese the but-for clause. So but for the physician's negligence, the injury would not have occurred. And then lastly, harm. So the plaintiff must have suffered some kind of injury, loss, or damage that they're seeking compensation for. Brianne, are you able to break down for the listeners, what is the anatomy of a civil action in Canada? Certainly, Hans. I will just say at the outset, a little disclaimer for myself that this is going to be somewhat Ontario-centric because that's where I practice, but the general uh, procedures are, are, are quite similar across the, across the country. But in a simplistic summary, there are really sort of three stages in a civil action. So we have the pleading stage, the discovery stage, and the resolution stage. The pleading stage is really uh, at the outset just defining the action, the name of this originating process that you referenced in in your introduction. You you received what's called a statement of claim um, that can be different depending on your province. BC, I think it's called a notice of civil claim. In Quebec, it's an originating application. And Hans, you've already given us a little bit of insight into your experience of being served at the outset and some of your feelings about what you thought when you read those allegations against you and the uh, the harsh language. Um, yeah, they're hurtful. It, yeah. it kind of hurts. Yeah, I know. And and this, you know, as someone who reads these all the time, I, I and I try and convey this to my clients. You know, there is a lot of boilerplate language in those statement of claim that has to be there, right? The, the purpose is for the plaintiffs to identify their allegations of negligence and outline the facts that they're going to rely on to support that. Um, and then I'm sure you recall that we then prepared your responding document, which here in Ontario is the statement of defense, right? And that's where we responded to the allegations of negligence against you um, and outlined all the facts that we were going to be relying on. And that one I felt a little more positive about. It was it was not quite as uh, as hurtful as the other comments. Right. We got we got to tell your side of the story. And so really taking together the statement of claim, statement of defense, these outline really the boundaries of the action, right? What's going to be relevant as we go forward. So the next stage after the pleadings are closed is what we call the discovery stage. This is in essence, just gathering all of the evidence and sharing that between uh, all the parties. We don't have trial by surprise here in Canada. So it's really incumbent upon all the parties um, to share all their documents and information that are relevant with the other parties. So two ways of, uh, of doing that. One, we have the documentary discovery where we exchange documents. So in these types of cases, obviously medical records are our queen and being shared. And thank um, goodness we're on electronic <laughs> records now because my writing was awful. So I'm That's so right. thankful. <laughs> so are we <laughs> having to read them after the fact. And then there's the examinations for discovery, which are the the oral questioning. Um, they're, they're called depositions in the States. That's usually most people's point of reference uh, from US TV. Then we have the final stage, which is really the resolution uh, stage. It can happen at, at any point in an action. As, as Janet, I think, mentioned earlier, you know, some things can be settled even before discovery. But basically, uh, you know, the path forward really depends on the strength of your defense. Are we moving towards a settlement? Are we moving, are we pushing forward to a trial? Or is the matter going to be dismissed? 
Perfect. And then there's the, as you mentioned, even a little bit earlier, but uh, the the length of this process can be quite variable. So you gave me, uh, I remember a nice prep for this when we started way back, I guess, 2014 or 2016, whatever. No, 2016, I believe it was. Yes. Right. We were going to be, yes, I would have told you we were going to be working together for years. And we sure did as we navigate that process. And I'm sure you can attest to, too, from your perspective, there's lots of ebbs and flows uh, in the activity sort of as we move through that uh, procedural continuum. Hans, I just want to uh, tell you that there's some excellent uh, CMPA e-learning activities, uh, modules on our website. These are all open access to anybody, uh, anatomy of a lawsuit and negligence and civil liability. And there's also a medical legal handbook for physicians in Canada that's also available on our website that can give you a lot more information and more details about this for our members. So if you don't have a Brienne on hand to ask her all these questions, then that's an excellent resource. We've gone through some of the data of uh, how many cases are brought forth for legal action, what are some of the main terms that we should be aware of, and how the actual process might go from beginning to end. I'd like to pivot a little bit and move the audience uh, forward with me as we start preparing for the next stage, which would be talking a little bit more about the discovery So the discovery stage, this is as far as my legal action got in the process. And I do remember, of course, uh, preparing for it. But uh, Brianne, can you give me a little bit of explanation on how you go about this with physicians? Certainly. In my experience, this is typically the examinations for discovery. So that oral questioning piece is typically the most stressful part of an action for physicians. And if you can believe it, even more stressful than actually going to trial. You know, the purpose is to provide opposing counsel the opportunity to question the physician um, about the care at issue, right? Their experience and training. Um, they're entitled to gain an understanding of this information beyond what can just be, you know, gleaned from the records. Um, as I'm sure you can attest to, this is an uncomfortable and unnatural uh, experience where you're uh, often being questioned by someone as well with significantly less medical knowledge um, than you. And so as your counsel, you know, my job is to, you know, help you prepare to the best of your ability. And I attend that examination for discovery with you, although my role is limited to only uh, objecting to questions that are that are inappropriate. Since we're in the middle still of this wonderful uh, pandemic, how has that changed things for you or has it changed the dynamic of this examination for discovery? Yeah, it has changed it quite significantly. So you'll recall, you know, your examination took place at a, at a court reporter's office, right? We were in, a, in an office room at a big table, um, everyone there. And now, uh, you know, since I guess March 2020, um, we moved quickly to doing these all virtually over Zoom. So it definitely uh there's pros and cons, as with everything, to a new procedure or forum for, for this uh, exercise. Uh, I do find for a lot of physicians, it decreases some of the stress associated with the process. There's a little less tension in a, in a Zoom room compared to sitting across the table from the lawyer questioning you. I recall from my case, one of the things that, that I noticed was I, I didn't really even remember the patient or the case. And I'd always heard about this uh, limitation period of two years when it comes to a statement of claim. Is, is that true or is that just physicians really crossing their fingers and hoping? So, uh, yeah, like all good 
legal tests and questions, the answer is really it it depends. The the statutes around limitation periods appear very straightforward, but often in in a medical negligence context can be quite complicated. So it, it really differs across the country. Um, in Ontario, we have an act that outlines a presumptive two-year limitation period. So all that means is that a patient can't commence an action against a physician after two years from the date of the uh, you know harm, loss, injury, whatever it may be. However, that assumes that at the time of the injury that the patient you know knew or ought to have known. Again, apologies in advance for the legalese here, but that there was a plausible inference of negligence, you know, related to that incident. So it it can be straightforward, right? There can be a a prescription error that's disclosed to a patient immediately. um, And then the two years starts ticking, or it can be less straightforward. For example, you're providing care to a minor and that can, you know, extend the limitation period up to, you know, 18 plus years. Oh, wow. And like everything in legal field, it seems like it's all shades of gray. All right. So I don't remember the patient, but I, I get served with legal action. And I think this is when really I, I'd like to ask Janet, uh, what is it that the CMPA is going to help me with? And when should I contact them or access this help? A great question, Hans. So when physician members call, they actually speak to one of our over 45 experienced physician advisors. So it's not a lawyer. Uh, They speak to a physician who really knows how challenging it is to practice medicine. And most of what we do is not dealing uh, with legal actions. Most of it is providing medical legal advice. In fact, uh, last year in 2020, we responded to over 23,000 advice calls. Holy, 23,000? Mm-hmm. And, and in addition to helping with legal actions that arise from your medical practice, we also assist physicians in responding to college complaints. So that's our provincial regulatory body in in Canada, Um, hospital complaints when your privileges are are being uh, affected. And we also assist with lots of other medical legal issues, such as, for instance, um, privacy complaints or uh, human rights complaints. But when you're served with a legal action, don't put it in a drawer and ignore it. We want you to phone the CMPA if you're a CMPA member. <laughs> I don't hide it somewhere and just no, forget about it. No, no. Oh, um, and uh, don't put it in your shoebox in the back of your closet. Um, we want you to phone the CMPA as soon as possible for if you are a member. And, and we know that physicians are extremely stressed when this happens. And uh, so we know that once you speak to a CMPA physician advisor who knows what you're going through and can help you through the process, that goes a long way to alleviate that stress. In fact, uh, our data shows that uh, for physician members, there's a 72 percent reduction in severe stress after they make those calls. And um, often after the call and and you talk to the physician advisor, they put you in contact with uh, legal counsel from one of our provincial law firms uh, from across the country, who often is in touch with them very shortly, often that same day. 
And if I, if I may jump in quickly, just something I wanted to build off what Janet mentioned. Yeah. I can't stress enough. Call, call immediately. You know, you've just been served. Take a breath, call CMPA. My little word of caution is don't go in the chart. Do not call the patient or the patient's family. Wait to get your advice first, you know, from one of those skilled physician advisors and then your legal counsel. Physicians can access uh, the CMPA either by phone or they can do it through a secure web portal. All right. Now, before we leave this section, uh, Brianne, there's one thing that I wanted to chat about briefly. In our case, we had to consider expert evidence. What's actually the role of expert evidence in medical negligence actions? And how do you find those experts? That's a really great question, Hans. So the subject matter of a medical negligence action, right, the medicine at play is not within the general population's everyday knowledge. And, and this includes judges. So we need experts to give their opinions to establish or defend against those elements of the tort that I already outlined for you. And so this evidence this from experts is needed at trial to establish or rebut allegations of medical negligence. So when we are looking for experts, you know, some of the considerations include things we've already discussed actually is relevant to standard of care. So things like training, where you practice, uh, again, you know, tertiary care center versus a rural outpost. Uh, we also look for physicians that are strong communicators. And most importantly, the expert has to have no conflicts of interest and has to be objective, right? So regardless of which party retains a physician expert, uh, it's important to know that ultimately their duty is to the court, right? To be impartial and be objective when they're providing their, uh, their opinion. One other factor we often look at too is consider whether or not uh, an expert has experience medical legally, if they've testified before, things like that. So now I've learned a lot about what I got to do if you're served with legal action, including calling the CMPA. A few tips from Brianne there. We talked about also uh, how that really is the first step, but also the stress of the examination of discovery. And this is one of the things that I really want to delve into a little further. We know that the physicians go through significant amount of stress whenever uh, there's complaints or legal action. I certainly can fully admit to being quite stressed when it happened. And it was something that I did struggle with. And I'd like to ask Janet a few questions about this. Usually the advice in these cases is to limit the discussion that you have about these cases with people. You Obviously, with your lawyers, you're going to be chatting with them quite a bit more in detail. But I've always been somebody who's very honest and open about what's going on and, and why, you know, why I may be in a great state of mind or not. It, it felt strange to kind of hide or, or it seems like there is this sort of culture of, of that we, we don't like to talk about this in medicine overall, not the details of the case, but actual any legal action or any complaints. Uh, what's your advice here for, for physicians, Janet, in dealing with the, the stress, dealing with that sort of feeling that you're kind of hiding from others? Well, you are right, Hans, that the clinical details of the case really should only be discussed with your CMPA physician advisor and the lawyer who are there to help you and support you through this. 
However, it's really important to reach out to your support network and help you with how you're feeling and help you cope with this because this is going to go on for a long time. When patients uh, suffer a poor outcome or initiate a, a complaint or a lawsuit, physicians experience a wide variety of emotions. Um, and it may include feelings of shame or guilt or uh, remorse, uh, feeling sometimes betrayed or, or disappointed. And it's very hard for physicians to be objective. We see physicians uh, report difficulties in sleep and concentration, sometimes second-guessing decisions. Some even have thoughts of, of leaving medicine after they receive a complaint or a legal action. But it's really important for physicians to know that you're not alone reach out to the CMPA, but also reach out to your support network, your colleagues, friends, and families, and talk about how you're feeling and um, make sure that you get the help you need to to get through this. So I found uh, Brianne to be somebody who is extremely supportive and helpful with this aspect of things. And and what is it that, uh, uh, what do you think uh, your role is here on in this aspect uh, when dealing with legal action and physicians? Thanks for those kind words, Hans. Um, it is a large part of my job, you know, to provide that support as your counsel, you know, obviously within the boundaries of my own professional training. But, you know, we are there to provide emotional support, uh, to try and help demystify the process and hopefully, you know, debunk a lot of the worst case scenarios um, that physicians are worried about at, at the outset. We also are able to connect our physicians with resources and outside supports if they require it. Um, I do echo Janet's comments as well, uh, you know, about being able to speak to people. The fact that the lawsuit exists is public and you can certainly share its existence and, uh, you know, the associated stress. But as Janet mentioned, you know, not the clinical details. You don't want to be breaching patient confidentiality and then obviously not sharing the conversations and advice from your lawyer, which is protected by uh, different kinds of privilege as well. I think what I want to emphasize is, uh, like Janet said, you know, you're not going through this alone. You have skilled lawyers and physician advisors on your side to help, um, you know, provide you with advice that that's keeping in your best interest. For those who are listeners to EM cases, I'm sure they've probably heard Dr. Sarah Gray, who's previously spoken about this and provided some great tips on how to deal with stress if, uh, in, a, in the case, this case was a patient safety incident and having a failure friend. Janet, uh, can you tell us what some of the resources that are available? I think this is so important that we want to make sure that we, we highlight it. What are the resources that are available uh, through CMPA? Yeah, Hans, we have a whole section on our website. Again, this is all open access um, on wellness that contains um, lots of uh, videos, uh, some of them featuring CMPA physician advisors. Uh, some of your listeners will recognize that many of uh, our emergency physicians who are talking about their experience, talking to physician members and uh we also have um, tons of articles and resources uh, available on our wellness site uh, dealing with uh, a college complaint, a legal action, a patient safety incident. 
we also have links to the Canadian Medical Association Wellness Hub, and this contains many other resources and articles, as well as the um, CMA, the Canadian Medical Association Virtual Peer Support Platform, and links to that. And we also have links to all the provincial physician health programs uh, across the country. So physicians really shouldn't hesitate to access all these online resources. And and especially, I think, for those of you who are involved in residency education, to really use these to help your residents become aware of what resources are available to them. Yeah. So it's really key here. As you can tell, there are supports available, whether it's your family or your failure friend who can at least support you in terms of how you're feeling, the CMPA with its many, many resources, as well as your CMPA physician advisor, and then, of course, your lawyer. So you're, you're not alone through this process. Now, one of the reasons why I really wanted to do an episode like this was to try to help physicians normalize the process of being involved in either a complaint or legal action. It's not to suggest that we shouldn't be aiming to be excellent physicians who do their best for all their patients, and in an ideal world, there would never be any complaints at legal action, but rather, simply they're a fact of life for the modern physician. Janet, would you be able to give me some advice on how I can maintain or any physician can maintain their wellness and really their sense of self during these cases? So as I mentioned, Hans, uh, you really need to reach out and don't hesitate to get the support you need and and think about um, how you're going to keep yourself well and stay focused and and get through this so it doesn't impact other patients and and your own mental health. Uh, I know it sounds very motherhood advice about sleep, eating and exercise and trying to maintain that balance and perspective, but it is really very important. Many centers have developed peer support programs uh, with mentors that are available in their institution. Um, But I think it's important to remember that uh, once the case is resolved, to teach others the lessons learned and, and coming to terms with the fact that no one's infallible, no matter how great a physician or clinician you are. And going through a legal action can feel very isolating, but you're not alone. You'll get through this. And even if it's eventually found that you didn't meet the standard of care, remember that you're only human. You can still learn from it, advocate for changes to help prevent it from happening again, and still go on and practice and be an excellent physician. I really like that advice. And uh, Brianne, do you have some thoughts on this as well? Yeah, I'll build on something that Janet mentioned there. You know, what if, you you know, it is found that you, you didn't meet the standard of care, right? This is a challenging thing for physicians to process for, for many reasons. And one of which I think is, you know, your identity is so tied with, you know, your profession and being a physician. It's the same for us uh, as lawyers. And so what I like to emphasize, you know, for, for these clients is, you know, first and foremost, that test for negligence, you'll note, I didn't identify an element that has to do with intent, right? We're talking about errors. We're talking about mistakes. These are not crimes that require evidence of an intention to do harm. Um, Second, you know, the care that results in patient harm is often the result of many factors, right? Some are under your control and, and some are not. 
thirdly, I think, you know, you can be reassured that in those circumstances, you know, where there was a breach and causation has been established, CMPA is going to ensure that patients are appropriately compensated and, you know, taken care of in that financial sense um, for that harm that's caused. And, and lastly, um, echoing again, Janet's comments, you know, like all errors, I think what matters most is, is how you, how you move forward from that, uh, learn, regain your confidence. So, you know, you can get back to doing what you do best, which is providing quality patient care. And I really hope that anybody who's listening can really take this excellent advice from both Janet and Brienne. No real medical talk is going to be done, especially in emergency medicine, if we don't provide people with some some tips and advice that they can bring to the bedside the next day. So for those of us who have never been in legal action or those of us who have been and are trying to avoid it in the future or even patient complaints, what are some of the best tips that you can provide for emergency department doctors to do tomorrow? Well, Hansa because we have such good uh, national data for emergency physicians, uh, we have a good view of the type of patterns we see repeatedly in our medical legal cases involving emergency medicine. And 88% of our CMPA legal actions for emergency medicine, the peer experts were critical of the physician's clinical decision-making. And um, two-thirds of these involve criticism of the assessment. So it's really the simple things. It's your history and physical, the pertinent pauses and negatives on your history and physical, the red flags on past history or family history um, that would make you consider or rule in or rule out a differential diagnosis. And, of course, the documentation of these uh, is often lacking, even though they are claimed to have been done. I think it's really important to document your thinking, your differential diagnosis and the rationale for why you excluded a more serious diagnosis in this case. Again, as Brienne said, it doesn't have to be perfect, but it just has to be reasonable. You know, why did you think this was gastro and not appendicitis? And and as long as you can sort of justify that, the better. So if you're excluding more serious diagnoses, you know, justify your reasoning, justify your differential diagnosis. Things we see repeatedly is pay attention especially vitals and changes in vitals. That's pretty objective data and pretty hard to justify why a heart rate was 133 and you sent the patient home and you didn't explain it or repeat it. So really pay attention to those things, uh, patterns in vital signs, abnormal vital signs, failure to take vital signs, uh, and especially prior to discharge. I mean, there's a reason that they're called vital and not useless signs, right? So we, we, we take that one to heart. Yeah, we're, we're taught that as a medical student, you know, vitals are vital. And um, Pay attention, especially to concerns that are raised or documented by especially nursing or other allied health professionals, uh, either verbally or in their notes, you know, often uh, that helps increase your situational awareness. Use your team around you to help uh, and make sure your team is able to voice those concerns with you. Um, have a have an open and safe environment that anyone can say, hey, I'm worried about this patient. 
And the other pattern we see is repeated presentations for evolving or unresolved symptoms. So, you know, we see a lot of undifferentiated patients in eMERGE and, you know, often people are pretty forgiving for that first physician who saw it when it wasn't very clear. But when the patient comes back a second, a third, a fourth time, uh, I think peer experts are less forgiving because you had multiple opportunities to go, okay, this isn't going the way I would expect. What else could be going on? Let's start from the beginning. Let's try to figure this out. This isn't, something is is not right. And, and to rethink. So, and the last thing is really take time to communicate and answer all the questions and concerns raised by your patient and family and be very careful about documenting and explaining your discharge instructions. There's a lot of uncertainty in our care and uh, explaining and documenting that you told the patient, I think it's this, but if this and this and this happens, these are warning signs and that you need to come back for reassessment and how quickly they need to come back and return and where they need to go. And often we see this as the most poorly documented part of the medical record. Certainly from uh, my recall of the the case that I had to go through, I fully agree that documentation was so key and really go through each word with your lawyer about exactly what you meant and what was there. And, and it's just so important to make sure that you are documenting, as Janet said, your thought process, the rationale and all that. Brianne, do you have any tips that you would want to add to what uh, Janet said? Sure. So uh, like Janet pointed out, you know, the standard's not perfection. This is not a transcription of everything that happened between you and the patient in the encounter. But, you know, again, as Janet pointed out, you should be including, you know, all the pertinent positives, negatives, risk factors, something that can help, you know, at a later time when you don't recall this patient encounter, you know, help you navigate your own thought process um, that you undertook at the time obviously beside being vitally important for good quality patient care. I, I think maybe it's just helpful to, to understand um, in, a, in a medical legal action, there's really sort of three sources of information for physicians, right? When they're, they're giving evidence um, in their own case. So they have their medical records, which are really gold for us when they are well-documented, um, but there's always something missing, <laughs> it seems. You know, if you have an independent recall, which very frequently the physician doesn't, right? You're seeing so many patients, you're dealing with bad outcomes all the time. Um, it's very reasonable that you may not remember, you know, a single encounter from years prior. Um, and third is your your usual or your invariable practice, right? So if you've documented, you know, neuro normal, I think Janet will jump in and say you should maybe document a little bit more than that. Um, but you know, if you are able to say, look, every time I conduct a neuro exam and document it this way, these are the steps that I actually take, um, with my patient, you know, that's another source of information. So obviously again, the medical records are, our queen in that context and uh, good documentation can can really help a case and poor documentation can certainly lead to a more unfavorable outcome in an otherwise uh, potentially defensible case. Yeah, I would 
echo that, you know, your documentation is is really key. And although we can rely on your invariable practice, it's a lot more of an uphill battle than if you've actually documented what you meant and the details of the exam when it's pertinent uh, to the assessment and contemporaneous at the time. So I think, again, as Brienne said, it's not a transcript, but leave your intellectual footprint in the chart so we can assess what you were thinking, that you did a careful, detailed assessment, considered all the possibilities, and and that's what we want to see, and and that it was reasonable. Leave your intellectual footprint. I love that. It makes me sound so much smarter than I am. All right. So to wrap up now, I want to just discuss uh, one final aspect of this. So that everybody knows, I consider myself not to toot my own horn, but an average doctor. And I want everybody who's listening to know that if a legal action happened to me, it can happen to anyone. There is a very prominent culture of secrecy when it comes to complaints and legal actions. So hopefully this works as a way to demystify some of this process. But also, you've got to remember that even though you're not supposed to share details of legal action, I think there are some big emotions that are associated with this that we discussed, such as shame, embarrassment, and thinking that others will see you as a bad doctor. And I know at variable times during the process, I felt this way, and I think most physicians can safely be assured from what you've heard today that this is not the case at all. We are human, we make mistakes, but we learn from them. Nearly all of these cases are an opportunity for you to learn, to grow as a physician, and to teach others about how to avoid these situations just like we're doing today. Also, once again, importantly, you're not alone. Talk to your family, talk to your failure friend, or your mentors. It is a scary situation. I can completely attest to that. But be aware of the process and normalizing it for you will hopefully help some of you out there, whether you encounter the situation now or in the future. I really want to say thanks so much for everybody for listening and to our amazing guest today, Dr. Janet New, thank you very much. Thank you for having me to here today. And Ms. Brianne Brannigan, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Hans. It was, it was great to uh, participate. Yes, thank you very much to all of you. Before we serve up a few more ED Chiefs giving you some more tips on how to manage being sued, I'd like to review how to avoid complaints and legal action based on CMPA data. Uh, that they talked about a little bit earlier in the podcast. Now, many of these suggestions, most of us do regularly anyhow, but it's just a good reminder to cross all your T's and dot all your I's. So the common patterns that the CMPA sees over and over are the following. One is issues with clinical decision-making and particularly of the basic assessment. So check pertinent positives, pertinent negatives on the history and physical, risk factors, et cetera. Number two is about documentation. It's not only pertinent positives and negatives, but a reasonable thought process of the differential diagnosis that you want to try and include. Number three, pay attention to vitals and changes in vitals and repeat the vitals prior to discharge if they came into the eMERGE with abnormal vitals. Number four, pay attention to nurse concerns, both verbal and written. Number five, develop a culture where allied health feels comfortable voicing their concerns. Number six, Know that patients with repeated presentations for evolving or unresolved symptoms are at high risk. Number seven, take time to address questions and concerns that your patient has. And finally, number eight, take the time to explain and document discharge instructions 
including the timing and location of the follow-up and when to return. All right, let's hear from a few other ED chiefs across Canada about their tips on managing being sued. Anton, thanks for asking me to comment on the excellent podcast uh, by Drs. Rosenberg, Newth, and Ms. Brannigan. You've asked me to uh, comment on any practical tips for docs if and when they get sued. There's four things that I think people should know before they get handed their first lawsuit. Number one, most eMERGE physicians will be sued during their career, and many people will be unfortunately sued more than once. You are not alone. Our job is such that we see a lot of sick people, and if you see enough sick people, you will be named in a lawsuit eventually in your career. Number two, your job is to be the kind of physician you would want your family and friends to see. Your job is not to be perfect every minute or to be able to see the future. And despite your best efforts, bad things may happen to patients that you are caring for. And that also is the nature of our job. Number three, the legal process respects that we are not perfect. So just remember that. And remember that you are held to the standard of a reasonable physician. And they comment on this in the podcast. And I think it's worth emphasizing. Your case will be reviewed by a physician who's in a setting similar to yours and who will support you if your thinking and actions are reasonable. So don't feel that you have to aim for perfection, which is impossible and often leads us into unnecessary testing or anxiety. Our job is to deliver the care that we would want for our loved ones. Number four, I'm going to reiterate, you are not alone. And when uh, you get handed a lawsuit for the very first time in your career, you feel angry and anxious and alone because no one goes into medicine uh, with the intention that they're going to be sued. So our personalities as physicians, we have to recognize are such that we have difficulty in dealing with anyone questioning our care or our standards because that's so important to us. So if you are dealing with this, take a, a moment to talk to your colleagues or your mentors and you'll realize that you're not alone. I think people are much better now about talking about our own mistakes and errors of which each of us has made in our career and that will help you out. Thanks, Anton. Best wishes. And here's Guy Hebert, the head of the Department of EM at the Ottawa Hospital and chair of the Department of EM at the University of Ottawa. I'll tell you what I do when I have a colleague who comes to me and tells me that they've just been served with a lawsuit. I, first off, take the time to reassure the, the physician and that this is an unfortunate, but too often the nature of the business of our practice, that we work in a high-risk specialty and that in medicine, as in life, bad things happen to good people. So in essence, I try to support the physician around the fact that one negative outcome does not make the physician a poor clinician. I would also reassure that physician that one shouldn't always pay too much heed or at least take to heart the language that you'll read and the facts as they're portrayed in the statement of claim. If you take to heart the language in the statement of claim, again, you must be the worst physician in the world. And we know this just simply isn't true. And, and, and this is 
language simply to bolster one party's point of view. And of course, the claim for damages towards every one of their family and relatives just adds icing to that cake. So, so know that, again, this is also just attempts to, to try to claim every justifiable clause the law would allow. So really, at the end of the day, I, I just try to reassure the physician that the CMPA is there for this very reason. That's why we pay for the support that we, that, that we receive. And they also, the CMPA has a very strong network around helping physicians go through this process. And they just know that it's very stressful for the physicians. They have a robust governance and a robust process of case analysis and review by experts. And this, I hope, helps the physician to go through this. At the end of the day, this is often an unfortunate circumstance, but um, one that does affect us sometimes. So hopefully that helps. And last but not least, we have Dr. Adam Quinn, the former chief and chair of EM in Ottawa. Hans, uh, thank you for inviting me to share some of my observations from over the years. Uh, it will be normal to have a sinking feeling in the pit of your stomach when you first hear of a lawsuit. You, you won't be yourself when you look up the chart. So, so be aware of that and don't succumb to temptation to make notes or changes in the chart. I'm sure this has been stated already, but you might not be thinking clearly. So hearken back to this podcast. You may also be tempted to speak with the nurse involved or with another EP that was involved to see what they remember. Do not do that. They may also be named in the suit. Their recollection will come to light during the process ahead. So CMPA advises you not to talk about the case with anyone for good reason. I suggest that you don't go to work for the first few days after you hear about a lawsuit. If you have a shift that day, uh, call in sick and you won't be on top of your game. Trade a few shifts away. Now, when you do get back, your clinical confidence may be undermined for quite some time. I think that's normal. So I think it's okay to go a bit slower on your shift. And you, you may have some cases where you normally would have a clear clear plan, but you, you're second-guessing yourself. So even if it's a simple case, if you're not feeling totally confident, uh, just run it by a colleague. They, they don't have to know why, but you can just get some validation uh, of your impressions and your plan while you're recalibrating. You may want to ask your department head for a temporary accommodation not to work in some area of the ED while you're regaining your equilibrium. Another thing is uh, we EPs, we, we like quick action by nature. Now, the reality is these medical legal proceedings take a long time to finish. So create a plan to actively manage your life and keep healthy until your case is wrapped up. Don't, don't start drinking heavily. Do more exercise and meditation. Get some medical uh, professional help if you, if you need to. Look, I know of lots of fantastic physicians who have been sued and they got back on track and they ended up having a great career and a happy life afterwards.
All right, as promised, as we near the end of the podcast, I just wanted to tell you a bit about the role of self-compassion training in all of this. So if you're like me and you tend to beat yourself up over mistakes or even perceived mistakes, I tend to be pretty self-critical. I find what's useful is to sort of talk to yourself like you would talk to a friend who confides in you about the mistake they made. So just ask yourself, what would my supportive friends say to me if I confided in them? And think those thoughts instead of your usual self-critical thoughts. There's a great book called The Mindful Self-Compassion Workbook by Kristen Neff that has really helped me be more compassionate to myself. And there is some evidence to suggest that the more self-compassionate you are, the more compassionate you'll be with your patients. And as we explained back in episode 145 on physician compassion, the more compassionate you are with your patients, the less likely you are to get sued or get a college complaint. So flip your self-criticism into self-compassion. That will not only help you manage better after getting sued, but potentially even make it less likely that you'll get sued in the future. This is not touchy-feely BS. This stuff really works. Okay. The last day that you can access the EM Cases Summit video streaming is February 15th. So please help support EM Cases to keep the podcast free, open access for many years to come by heading over to emcasesummit.com and getting your video streaming package that's packed with procedural videos, world-class talks, panel discussions, and short rants from your favorite EM Cases guest experts. Until next time... Learn what you can about getting sued so that you'll be better able to manage it when it happens. And remember, we all try our best at work and we all make mistakes. It's part of being human. And in the truest sense of my sign off, please take it easy.